Hello and welcome to the Palliative Care Journal Watch podcast by Pallium Canada for April 2022, where our panel of palliative care experts explore and discuss the latest peer-reviewed palliative care literature. Our host, Dr. Leonie Herx, is joined by her special guests, Dr. Jean Matthews and Dr. Anna Volk. If you'd like to access accompanying slides and links to the articles discussed in today's podcast, visit the link in the episode notes. With no further ado, it's time for the Journal Watch. Good afternoon. Welcome to Pallium Journal Watch program. This series of webinars and accompanying podcasts is brought to you by two academic divisions of Palliative Care in Canada, McMaster University and Queen's University. Together, we're going to share papers from peer-reviewed journals that caught our attention to help all of us stay up to date with the literature, to challenge us to think differently about a topic, or to confirm our current practices. It's for anyone with an interest in palliative care, providing palliative care at an organizational role, or policymakers or clinicians. A team of busy beavers and scholarly owls monitor about 15 palliative care general journals, palliative-specific journals and general journals, uh, for new and interesting papers that might change or confirm our current practices and thinking, from clinical care to education and quality improvement to health services organization and policymaking. For the year 2022, we're planning to host a webinar on an every second month basis and with a break over the summer, and then we may go to once a month, depending on how you folks like it. We look forward to input from you, the listeners, at the end of the session about how we can continually improve the series. We now have one credit per hour group learning from Maine Pro through the College of Family Physicians, and we are seeking rural college certification for physicians who belong to that college. Please note that the webinars will be transformed into accompanying podcasts and made available via Pallium Canada's ECHO website. What to expect from today's session? We'll be presenting four papers for you, giving short summaries followed by a chat between the co-hosts and panelists, and we'll also be responding to your questions via the Q&A function. So please type in your questions into that Q&A box after each paper presentation, and we'll be able to incorporate your thoughts and comments and questions at that time. A list of honorable mentions of papers that we thought were really noteworthy, but we didn't have time to discuss them today, will be provided at the end of the session and on our website uh, with links to all of those articles. Um, this session is being recorded and will be emailed to registrants within a week and a podcast published a few weeks later. Please check our website for release dates for all of these. And lastly, a disclaimer, this is a journal watch and not a journal club. So we're not going to be providing in-depth critical appraisals of each article. And we ask you to take to further discern uh, the applicability of the journals we're discussing today as it's relevant to your practice. But really, this is where evidence and innovation, insights and skepticism, and some fun have a home. And we hope that you'll enjoy today's session. So for introductions, the co-editors and co-hosts of Pallium Journal Watch are myself, Dr. Leonie Herks, and Dr. Jose Pereira. Unfortunately, Jose is not able to join us today due to a family emergency. And our panelists for today are Dr. Jean Matthews and Dr. Anna Work. Both are assistant professors in the Division of Palliative Medicine at Queen's University. Thanks so much, Anna and Jean, for being with us today. Glad to be here. Great. 
Uh, and just some disclosures. So Pallium Canada is a not-for-profit foundation that has funding from Health Canada. Our panelists today have disclosed uh, relationships with the Canadian Society of Palliative Care Physicians as a board member for, for myself, as well as for Dr. Anna Work. She's a previous Canadian Society of Palliative Care Physicians board member, which is relevant to one of the papers that we'll be discussing today. Um, and of course, Dr. Jose Pereira receives a stipend from Pallium Canada as their scientific officer. The Scientific Planning Committee has complete independent control over the development of the course content uh, to mitigate any potential biases. And the Palliative Care ECHO Project is a five-year national initiative to cultivate communities of practice and establish continuous professional development among healthcare providers in palliative care across Canada for anyone who cares for patients with a serious life-threatening illness. Stay connected through the website www.echopalliative.com. And the ECHO project is funded by financial contribution from Health Canada. The views expressed herein do not necessarily represent the views of Health Canada. So now we'll move on into our fun part of the program. And we're going to go through four featured articles today, one on specialist versus generalist palliative medicine, another on advanced care planning, the use of nasal high flow therapy for symptom management in people receiving palliative care, and lastly, opioid safety recommendations in adult palliative medicine, a Delphi expert consensus. So I get to uh, dive in first. The first article is entitled Generalist versus Specialist Palliative Medicine. It's from the Journal of Palliative Medicine in February of this year, 2022 by Dr. Perry Coyle and his colleagues in the United States. So this article is really um, a discussion of the issue of generalist versus specialist palliative medicine. And uh, the methodology is really a, a transcription of this discussion between these leading experts in the field. Um, some of their key discussion points are around what is the most cost-effective and systems-effective approach for the role of specialist palliative care in upskilling people on the front lines to do the work in palliative care with indirect support from the specialist team for education, backup advising colleagues, as well as providing indirect support through uh, such tools as comfort order sets for those who are actively dying. Should specialist palliative care see those with the most complex and difficult palliative care needs given the shortage of specialist palliative care resources. They used an analogy to cardiology, which I think many of us are familiar with, that you know, cardiologists don't want to see all the people in the hospital with high blood pressure. They only see those that have really, really difficult to control high blood pressure. And similarly, specialist palliative care doesn't need to see all those in the hospital with serious illness or all those who are dying, uh, but only those with the most complex needs. They talked about the difficulty with palliative care funding and how it's not revenue generating for hospital and that the case we have to make for advancing palliative care and getting buy-in is based on quality, safety, and support for staff, not really the revenue value. I would add we can show cost savings in palliative care. We can discuss that uh, further uh, during our chat at the end. They lastly asked a very thoughtful question that I have been since reflecting on in the past month after reading this article, and who is the consult for? Sometimes the patient that the specialist palliative care team needs to support is actually the referring physician or team who is struggling with something. And I think we've really seen this heightened during the COVID-19 pandemic where teams continue to struggle with burnout um, and distress due to shortage of resources and many other issues. So their conclusion of the article was that palliative care needs to grab the oars and start rowing in one direction regarding what is primary palliative care and what is specialist palliative care. And that palliative care clinicians need to be able to answer that question consistently when asked what the definitions are. And they challenged us to think if we cannot get our definitions right, 
then how can we get our gameplay straight and get the buy-in and advances in palliative care that we're looking for through advancing relationships with system partners. I will just spend a little bit of time talking about why this article is important before we dive into the chat, but I think, you know, in terms of background, the issue of generalist versus specialist type care is really on the minds of healthcare leaders, I would say around the world and definitely in Canada. We know we have a changing demographics of our population. More people are living longer with more multimorbidity. We have a changing nature of workforce. And as we know, we have limited resources for specialist palliative care. We get more demand for palliative care as we understand the advantages of earlier palliative care, the, the need for palliative care in non-cancer settings. And I thought this statistic was quite striking that the, you know, in the global atlas of palliative care, they showed, estimated that the need for palliative care globally was going to double by 2060. So I think, you know, the article tackles some pivotal and timely questions about how are we going to improve access to much needed palliative care and indeed get ourselves kind of rowing in the same direction with clear definitions and models for palliative care understood by all of us. And I think the Health Canada National Palliative Care Framework really describes an internationally accepted model that supports this integration of specialist palliative care and primary palliative care. But I'm not sure that all of us in Canada would be able to support or describe the same definitions as they challenged us to. I think some of the questions that they asked, really, we are all struggling with across Canada. So such as, where is specialty palliative care most valuable? Who are the patients who will benefit most from this type of intensive specialized care? How do we stop being a reactive model of service and become proactive? Should we redesign palliative care practice using principles of population management, which is do only the things that only we can do? And what is that in, in specialist palliative care and primary palliative care? Can we leverage the increase in virtual palliative care services that were introduced during COVID-19 to promote wider access to specialty palliative care post-pandemic? And what does that look like? And how do we promote advances in primary palliative care and reserve specialty palliative care for those who will benefit from it? Should we have specific triggers for palliative care consultation um, or criteria for who the specialist palliative care teams see? So before we go to discussion, just a quick summary. I think, you know, certainly the strengths of, of this article are that it is really dialogue between experts in the field who have firsthand knowledge of the challenges of access and need for palliative care versus the limitation in the resources available. But of course, its limitation is indeed that it is a discussion and not an in-depth evidence-based review or objective study on this topic. But a timely, you know, an important discussion to have with the rapid increase in the number of articles really starting to look at this and show the need for this idea for clear referral criteria. So I have a question for Jean and Anna now, uh, and then we'll look for you to put some questions in the Q&A as well, is how do you think in Canada we can as palliative care clinicians, get our oars rowing in the same direction? We all uh, jump in, uh, Leoni. I think that's a really challenging question because, you know, at each site, we have kind of different models of care. The thing that I think about is systematic screening and triggered referral. This is kind of the buzzwords in, in kind of study design for uh, research in palliative care in the last couple of years is you know, have all patients systematically routinely screened for symptoms and then define cutoffs that if they're above a certain cutoff, then this goes to specialist palliative care. If they're below a certain cutoff for, for those symptom thresholds, then primary palliative care, whether it's the attending specialist or primary care physician can deal with that. And I think at each site, we have to kind of look at from a resource perspective, what makes sense in, in terms of those cutoffs. 
so that the specialist palliative care isn't overburdened or primary palliative care isn't overburdened. Those are my uh, initial thoughts, but I think this idea of systematic screening and triggered referral is a way that we can all kind of row together in the same direction. Yeah, that is a very challenging question. I think one of the key things that they mentioned is the definitions. And sometimes, you know, we don't even know what we're talking about. I think we all have different definitions of what we think primary palliative care is, what specialist, subspecialist palliative care is. And I think that's um, a key thing that we need to try to hone in on, which is, is very challenging, again, in different places where you have different resources, different models of care can make it more difficult. But I picked up on a couple of things that they said in the paper and just how do we be more proactive as opposed to a reactive service, you know, providing care. And I think the phrase that they always use is sometimes you just don't know what you don't know. And I think there are times where people feel that they are providing really good palliative care when perhaps in fact, they don't know some of the resources that might be out there in a subspecialist or specialist palliative care world. And then on the other hand, sometimes I, you know, someone had mentioned in the paper there when they were doing this discussion that Sometimes they just want to refer to the specialist palliative care because we do do a good job. And so they tend to say, why don't you do it? Because you do have, um, are better equipped at it. So I think it's, uh, it's challenging how, you know, we live in such a big country with so many different models, as Jean said. So I, I think if we can get those definitions a little bit more honed in, that would be helpful. Thanks, Anna and Gina. I would hope that with the action plan for the National Framework for Palliative Care in Canada, we can have some consistency in moving the definitions forward within our teams. And I'm wondering, Jean, how we can use things like different patient reported outcome measures, for example, like phase of illness, for example, or the Edmund symptom assessment scale. And are there ways that we can use those types of measures in a consistent standardized way across the country within palliative care programs that may help us with deciding, you know, more objectively who the specialist team should see? I'm just curious what your thoughts are. Yeah, I think there was a great line in that article. On any given day, there are several patients in the hospital who are more in need of specialist palliative care than the patients we are currently seeing or the patients who are referred to us. I think that line really speaks to the sort of haphazard way in which referrals come through. Most of it is kind of based on clinician judgment. Uh, there are you know, plenty of studies, especially in the kind of oncology sphere, where we can show that clinician judgment may not be the best way to capture the patient who are most in need of specialist palliative care. So the next phase of the evolution of palliative care research is really looking at, you know, what are the triggered criteria that we can use to kind of get over this clinician judgment and say that, you know, we apply across the hospital setting these criteria and these are the thresholds. And if you meet that threshold, they looked at whether an automatic referral would be acceptable to oncologists. And and I think oncologists said that they would want to have the final say, you know, they get an alert from the triggered system, and then they have the final say and say, okay, we'll discuss this with the patient and then make the referral. One thing that I I was interested in from the article, so one of the um, panelists made the point that if we use this advisory and mentoring role as the role of the specialist palliative care, primary kind of the primary role, does this lead to generating zero income for us? I mean, does it affect us in terms of our business case for expanding specialist palliative care? So I'm, I'm interested in kind of both your thoughts on that as well. 
Well, I think that's definitely one of the challenges in the way that our funding models are set up is that we don't have adequate protected time consistently across the country for all of our teams in the vital role that we have to play in education, advocacy, program development, and research, right? And so the non-clinical role, which is certainly a larger proportion of the specialist palliative care role, and hopefully should be increasing over time as we build the core competencies for, for palliative approach to care. So definitely need some kind of consistent advocacy around this at a national level. I know that the Canadian Society of Palliative Care Physicians has a new human resources committee that is going to be looking at some of these um, challenging issues that I, you know, affect our international counterparts. This this rule for specialist palliative care is around the globe, so it's not unique to Canada. And what can we learn from teams in other countries who are a bit further ahead on the curve than us in terms of integrating specialist and primary palliative care? So those are just some initial thoughts, but... Yeah, I just, I wanted to, if you don't mind, I just wanted to pick up on a question that was asked in the Q&A box, um, where it says, how do, how do we balance considerations regarding equity and access to palliative care in the context of systemic constraints? And I think, you know, that that is one of the things is, how do we ensure that there is equi- what, equitable access to palliative care, whether it is primary palliative care and or uh, specialist palliative care? I know that in the article, they talked about in the context of the COVID pandemic, they did bring in, obviously, we're trying out virtual care. And, you know, that somehow does help in some ways to reach out to some people in places that we otherwise might not be able to. But then on the other hand, if you don't have access to technology, if you don't know how, if you, you know, you're not literate with technology, is that actually limiting your ability to access palliative care in other settings? So I I think um, that's a great question. And I think we need to consider, you know, when we bring in different models of care or new approaches that we are ensuring that everyone does have the ability to access that. Thanks. And I see another uh, really great question in the chat. And I know we're, we have to move on to the next article, but I wonder if we can come back to this one uh, at the end, if we have time. I will read it out because I think it's a, something for us all to reflect on um, and maybe come back to at a later date, but is upskilling unidirectional? What can specialist palliative care learn from primary palliative care that would help foster effective collaborative team-based care? And without going to detail, I, I think that's brilliant. I hope it should be bi-directional and how we can all learn from each other to improve care. And I think if there's anything in 30 seconds or less, Anna or Jean, you want to add to that, but I, I think that's brilliant and something we really need to reflect on as, as we start to row in the, the same direction. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think one of the things that we're starting to do here, and I think uh, hopefully it will apply to a wider team, is how to have a bi-directional communication with primary care physicians about a shared care for palliative care uh, how can we support them and how can they, you know, teach us about what, what's available to them locally in, in kind of managing primary palliative care. So I think there's a lot of opportunity for bi-directional learning. In the interest of time, I think I'll uh, jump to the next article that we're going to discuss. So this is another roundtable discussion, uh, just like the first article that was presented in the Journal of Palliative Medicine earlier this year. And the moderators were the same. It was Dr. Pericoil and Dr. Gunton. The title of the article is Caught in a Loop with Advanced Care Planning and Advanced Directives, How to Move Forward. The panelists that they had invited, I think it was a great selection. So it was Drs. Arnold, Hickman, Morrison, and Sidori. Before I get to the objective and methods, just a bit of background to how all these four people might have come on that panel. So Drs. Arnold and Morrison in 
the summer of 2020 had written an editorial in Journal of Palliative Medicine, which was kind of went quite viral because it, it had a very provocative title, which was advanced care planning slash directives, clear, simple, and wrong. And, and they followed this up in the next year in a JAMA viewpoint editorial in, in which, again, they had a provocative title, What is Wrong with Advanced Care Planning? The basic kind of point, which, you know, I'll, I'll get into that, they have some strong points about the research related to advanced care planning. And obviously, with such a provocative title, there were a lot of response letters to the editor. And among them were a letter of response from Hickman and Sidori. So I think it was a great panel to have to discuss this topic, uh, the objective, how to move forward with advanced care planning and advanced directives in palliative care. Again, coming to the methods, it was a transcribed discussion between the leading physicians in the field. Now, I'll talk a bit about what the main argument from doctors Morrison and Arnold were. Basically, they looked at the research in advanced care planning. So they looked at a systematic review of 80 systematic reviews. So a huge number of studies, basically to see, did advanced care planning lead to goal concordant care? Basically meaning that if a person said they want to be DNR, they want to die at home, and then you, you fast forward and see, did they actually get what they wanted? Did they get goal concordant care? And a huge number of kind of uh, systematic review level evidence uh, doesn't show great evidence for that. So they make the point that we should stop focusing on advanced care planning research, and we should invest more research dollars and time in in-the-moment decision-making. How do we support in-the-moment decision-making to try and improve goal-concordant care? That's a point that they make. And, you know, Hickman and Sidori, they make the first point they make in, in the discussion points. What are we talking about when we talk about advanced care planning? Are we talking about a checklist of code status? Where do you want to die? Is that what all of advanced care planning is? Or is it as our colleagues in Ontario, Jeff Myers and group, they did a response letter in which they said that, you know, advanced care planning is a lot more than that. It's about illness understanding. It's about assigning a power of attorney for personal care. It's about exploring a patient's goals and values. So if you look at advanced care planning as all of that, then you shouldn't measure it just by how does it lead to goal concordant care. So the points that Hickman and Sidori make is that if you look at the impact on caregiver satisfaction, caregiver grief and burden, advanced care planning actually leads to improvements in those outcomes. So the main point that they make is goal concordant care requires a whole lot of things to work together. I mean, beyond advanced care planning, it re requires a robust home and community care model. It requires that you know, at Saturday, 11 p.m., if a patient calls and says that they've got significant dyspnea, there should be a, a nursing team that can go in and assess them. But if there isn't and they go to ER, then that's not because of something wrong with advanced care planning. So the point that they make is we shouldn't blame advanced care planning for what's wrong with the healthcare system. Advanced care planning cannot fix a broken healthcare system. We need all kinds of supports for home and community care for good goals of care documentation in the HIS. We need good in-the-moment support for decision-making to have goal-concordant care. So I think this was a great article to kind of uh, have this important discussion. The strengths and limitations, again, the strengths is, you know, it included the real kind of voice leaders and kind of thought leaders on this topic. The limitations, this was just a kind of 
a roundtable discussion without kind of an evidence-based review. So at this point, maybe I'll just open up for comments to Anna and Leonie. Do you think advanced care planning is wrong or do you think there's something right with it? Uh, maybe I'll jump in. Yeah, I still think they're helpful. I think, again, it's this idea of the definition. I know I keep coming, harping back to sort of definitions, but what are we talking about? And they, they also talk about this. They say, what is it? You know, when they say it doesn't work or it, it, it fails, it, it shouldn't be used, but what is it? And I think there are components of, of advanced care planning that is very helpful because it gets people to reflect and begin to think about what might be coming down the road or even in the process of going through their journey, really, and it not being this crisis at the last moment. They think, I think they talk about, um, you know, preparing for an earthquake. There are so many parts. And as you say, it's, you know, the system needs to be, there needs to be a system readiness or preparedness for how we, we address these issues, not just individual, but certainly individually and collectively as families and communities, we can begin to have these discussions where it's not a surprise at the very end. But yes, you can't, you know, hypothetically, we, I think having these discussions sometimes hypothetically, what would you do if, and I think it's challenging to do that, but I do feel like it, it is important because, you know, some of the surveys out there that say people want to, a lot of people want to die at home, you know, it depends on when you ask them that question, right? Some people may really just want to be cared for as long as possible at home, but per- perhaps don't want to actually die at home when the, when the day comes. But again, it's, it's helpful to have these discussions, I think anyway, but yeah, I'll cast it over to, to Leonie. Yeah, I know. I agree with, actually really liked this round table. It's a, it's a timely article. I think, you know, there's something kind of sexy, if you will, about advanced care planning and throwing that term around, but unless we really understand what it is we mean, and a, a lot of people I think do confuse it with, you know, just a power of attorney and advanced directives and, you know, saying something well in advance, but when you're living it in the moment, your needs and wishes and preferences can change. So I think that's a really important part that I reflect on is that we always need to make sure in the moment that this is the care that's in um, keeping with what the patient and family wishes are and what in the context of their illness, where it's at at this point, which you can't necessarily predict, you know, one year in advance or three months in advance. So I think, you know, making sure that we really have people who are skilled in having these difficult conversations and goals of care in particular, not just some of these other pieces around legal documents that, you know, need to be really, those skills need to be developed in all our healthcare professionals. And I think we talked about this in the last session, but what is the role of the whole team in facilitating these discussions and um, making sure we really do uh, understand a person's wishes and confirming those in the moment. Like you said, Anna, not everyone, everyone might think they want to die at home or the, you know, two thirds of people think they might wanna have a home death, but as your illness progresses and things change and your needs change, uh, that wish may change. So again, uh, making sure in the moment we're confirming. Um, I think we have to move on to our next article. So I'm going to present to you an article from the Journal of Pain and Symptom Management this year by Dr. Huang, um, Joanna Huang, and her team in Australia. And the title of this article is Nasal High Flow Therapy for Symptom Management in People Receiving Palliative Care. So the objective of this article was to discuss a new potential treatment for relieving breathlessness in patients at home using nasal high flow therapy. The authors presented uh, a case study of a patient with severe chronic obstructive pulmonary disease or COPD who received home-based nasal high flow therapy approximately eight hours a day of a flow rate of 20 liters per minute over a 12-month period with good effect for the relief of this uh, patient's severe chronic breathlessness. 
in the article, they talked about some really key things, I think, with good learning for, for all of us on the management principles for severe chronic breathlessness, the physiological effects of nasal high flow therapy, and the evidence for long-term use in the community setting. Their conclusion was that nasal high flow therapy is a new and appealing option for people with uh, severe chronic breathlessness at home or in palliative care settings, and that the patient in this case report experienced, uh, as mentioned, improved breathlessness scores, but also increased uh, exercise capacity. And they say that this case supports growing literature demonstrating the usefulness of nasal high flow therapy as a management approach for relieving severe chronic breathlessness. And for background, um, we know that supplementary oxygen is often required uh, for patients who are in advanced stages of lung diseases, including COPD and idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. Some patients require high flow rates that surpass 15 liters per minute. And these high flow rates cannot be delivered by conventional oxygen delivery methods, such as nasal prongs or partial and non-rebreathing masks. High flow oxygen greater than 20 liters per minute can be delivered by air entrapment masks, which are sometimes known as venturi masks, or non-invasive ventilation, such as continuous positive airway pressure or CPAP, when appropriate in select patients with complex palliative care needs. However, they're not very comfortable and not well tolerated by many of these patients. So nasal high flow therapy, which can also be known as high flow nasal cannula, is gaining popularity as a means of providing both heated and humidified high flow oxygen at rates of 20 to 60 liters per minute. And it enhances patient comfort and tolerance compared with these traditional high flow oxygen systems such as CPAP. And so a person can continue to talk, eat and drink while receiving that therapy. But usually the limitations is that they've only been delivered mostly in inpatient settings. So I think this article is noteworthy because uh, although it's a case report, um, it does show successful use of high flow nasal therapy in the home setting. And it describes a patient with severe symptoms who was able to get it at home for a long period of time, a year long, with good effect on their breathlessness. So given the patient's worsening symptoms, despite good compliance with all the previous therapies they tried, both non-pharmacological and pharmacological, this trial of home-based nasal high flow therapy was suggested. And because he was not hypoxemic, they were able to do the nasal high flow therapy without oxygen entrainment. So it's not required to have oxygen entrained, which um, was an important learning from uh, my perspective. And that he was able to manage eight to eight hours a day uh, with this therapy at room temperature with a high flow rate of 20 liters. So while he didn't use the nighttime version, even though it was recommended for 24 hours a day of use for him, he preferred just to use it during daytime only. So strengths and limitations of this is, of course, it's a single case report, but the strengths, it had some strengths for a case report. You know, it used validated patient report, reported outcome measures, including periodic lung function tests, such as the six minute walk test um, assessed throughout the 12 month study period, and also I reported his subjective level of dyspnea by way of a modified Medical Research Council scale, the MMRC. So they quite meticulously documented these outcome measures and reported them in the article. And it also provided a good summary of nasal high flow therapy and a great table that compared, I found very helpful, conventional oxygen therapy with nasal high flow therapy and some useful information about how to set up the equipment at home for home delivery, but with a reminder that, you know, certainly this type of equipment does restrict mobility. And from an ethical perspective, this may not be available in all settings of care in all jurisdictions in particular. And then lastly, they provide a hypothesis as to why this patient may have benefited from the therapy, even though he didn't have oxygen delivered, but just the high flow air as this 
and it was unique in case this patient, you know, he wasn't hypoxemic. So it's just lots of food for thought, I thought. And I'm curious to know your response to it, Jean and Anna. And if you think that this, we might be able to see some more studies looking at expanding this in, in the palliative care setting. Thanks, Leonie. I thought it was really fascinating. I, I don't have too much experience with this high flow nasal cannula therapy. I noticed that the study is out of Australia. So I was also wondering, you know, in Canada and Ontario, uh, what is the availability for this high flow nasal therapy in the home setting in uh, you know, long-term care setting in the palliative care unit type setting? I think this is a great option. As you said, I think we need to do more studies kind of comparing this against other kind of modalities against uh, um, just the use of opioids and pulmonary rehab and all those kind of things to see if this does actually lead to improvements in uh, patient-reported outcomes. What I found interesting was it, compared to just regular oxygen therapy, this does have some limitations in terms of apparently it's a sh much shorter tubing, so the patient can't actually walk around with it, uh, as opposed to when you have your regular oxygen at home, they have long tubings and people can get around with it. So they do recommend it's used only for nighttime or when patient is basically at rest in bed. The, the other thing that I saw was that they mentioned that because it's such high flow, if you're kind of eating or drinking something at the same time, it can increase the risk of aspiration. So they suggest to, to stop it and, and then you know, either drink something and then restart it. So, I mean, it does raise questions about uh, uh, compliance and things like that. This was just a case report, so we'll have to kind of uh, investigate it uh, further. But I think it's a great option that, you know, if, if it is available to us, we should look at. What about you, Anna? Yeah, I thought it was pretty fascinating as well. But I think those were sort of my initial thoughts as in terms of will people actually tolerate it? I mean, if you have more than an N equals one, will all of your other uh, patients actually um, like having this there? But I, I suppose, you know, it, it was great to see that it actually does um, reduce the need for opioid use. So it could potentially be opioid sparing in some sense, but not to say that people shouldn't be on opioids. But I think with these chronic uh, non-malignant diseases, the prognosis is so difficult to determine sometimes. And so it's um, helpful to have this other option. But yeah, I, I also had those thoughts as well in terms of being a little bit more restricting and recommending it only at night because of the, the apparatus itself and not being able to move around so freely was one of the, the questions. But it's interesting that this person did have a good outcome and the scores actually improved, which is great to have that sort of objective, I guess, measure to, to see. So yeah, it would be good to, if, you know, for future studies to add some like quality of life metrics into this. So it was great that they did use, you know, specific measures, but adding in, you know, with a larger cohort of people, like how it Im impacted, you know, their mobility and all those pieces, like that would be a great study. So hopefully we can get someone out there who's listening to take this forward as something uh, we can look at in Canada too. Um, I think we probably should move on to our fourth article, which is over to you, Anna. Yeah. So this, um, the article that I am going to present is one that is, um, was published in the BMJ Supportive and Palliative Care uh, Journal uh, in the last, the most recent issue, which was in March, and it's entitled Opioid Safety Recommendations in Adult Palliative Medicine and North American Delphi Expert uh, Consensus. And it was done by Dr. Jenny Lau and colleagues. And uh, the great thing about this one is that it is Canadian in the Canadian context. So I'm sure most of us probably uh, know a lot of the, the authors on this paper, which is, um, which is great. So the aim of the study really was to develop expert consensus recommendations 
on how to promote opioid safety in adults receiving palliative care in Canada and the U.S. And they define opioid safety really as uh, prevention, identification, and management of aberrant medication-taking behaviors, opioid use disorder, and opioid-related overdoses. So they used this Delphi process and they had online surveys that they filled out in two rounds by American and Canadian panelists that had expertise in palliative care, addiction, and pain medicine. And so they came up with these recommendations. And this is where the, the board members of the Canadian Society of Palliative Care Physicians, or CSPCP, then rated how important these um, recommendations were and, and which ones the phys that physicians should actually be um, more aware of. So the results showed that there were a, a total of 130 recommendations from these two rounds that focused on six opioid safety-related areas, including just general principles, measures for healthcare institution and palliative care training clinical programs, patient and caregiver assessments, prescribing practices, monitoring, and patient and caregiver education. There were a 59 that didn't achieve consensus, but were deemed potential areas of research. And then from all of these results, the CSPCP selected 43 high priority recommendations and eight high priority research areas. And so the great thing about this paper is it actually includes a supplemental table. And so you can actually refer to each of those recommendations that are listed in the article. They concluded that there is an urgent guidance um, about opioid safety is needed to address the opioid crisis and that consensus recommendations can promote safer opioid use while recognizing that it's important that we use these medications for palliative care uh, and symptom management. And so why is this article important? Well, we do have an opioid crisis currently, and I think it's been made worse by the COVID pandemic, and particularly in Canada here. And I think it is a public health emergency, and I think it's kind of, you will hear it on the news, but I think it has kind of not really highlighted as much, but really made worse by the pandemic. The previous guidelines that have been available have really focused on chronic non-cancer pain, and really it's difficult to actually integrate those into our patient population. And so this study really does help provide a lot of information and a lot of things, again, going back to the things that we don't know, we don't know, again, highlighting some things that perhaps are things that we should be looking into further. And so it's great because it is in context to the Canadian context with experts and the recommendations that they had really not just target clinicians, but it actually provides recommendations for healthcare providers, administrators, educators, and policymakers. So I think it is, this is something that is such an important issue that really requires everybody, you know, all hands on deck to be able to address the issues. So it will hopefully direct us to do further research as well. Some of the uh, strengths and limitations, again, expert opinion on this and discussion. And they do say that there may be some bias that was introduced because only 23 of the 49 invited experts did agree to participate. Given the variability of different settings, again, with access and different resources, the findings probably aren't generalizable in all settings. And they do mention that there's so many recommendations that there might be cognitive burden on potential users. And I think, yes, it is overwhelming when you look at all of these recommendations. But I think, again, it is just great to sort of a stepping stone to actually moving forward in, in terms of doing further research in this area. And some of the recommendations they do make, I won't list all 130, but some of the, the important ones really are that opioids should not only be prescribed by palliative care specialists to patients, but it should be a part of the pra of practice of all clinicians caring for patients with life-limiting illnesses, that there should be uh, 
data collected on opioid-related overdoses of patients receiving palliative care. When we're doing assessments, we should be looking at caregiver substance use history as well. So I think, I mean, this is just, you, we could talk about this forever, I think. It could be a whole day session on, and I know that uh, the authors have, have had uh, webinars on this, but I, I think I'll just throw it back to you two and see if you had any thoughts on this paper. I thought this was a humongous work. I mean, 130 odd recommendations. It must have been super challenging to to choose, you know, the high priority out of those because I was just reading through the supplementary table. All of them made sense. Like all of them were like, oh yeah, I, I, that's, I think that's important. So if I had to choose, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't have gotten it down a lot further than 130. A few kind of takeaways for me. One of them, how many of us are kind of routinely screening for opioid-related health harms? I mean, I think this is something that we at, at Queen's have started to look at, especially in our oncology palliative care clinic. But I'm curious to know, even in the audience, is anyone working at centers where they are routinely screening using some kind of tool like the opioid risk tool or some other tool where they're routinely screening for risk of opioid-related health harms in patients that are being referred to palliative care? I was having a conversation with Eduardo Bruera earlier where you know we were just kind of discussing a potential project at Queen's. And he was saying that he's always been surprised by how little attention has been put on this topic. Because as you said, Anna, like the kind of assumption has always been that our patient population is not at risk of opioid-related health harms. But clearly, there have been a number of studies that, that have shown that the incidence of opioid-related health harms in this patient population is significant, and it is something that we should be routinely screening for. What about you, Leonie? Yeah, just kudos to Dr. Lau and her team for this amazing work. And I think lots of learnings for us to mull on in Canada. But one thing I noticed is that prescribing opioids can sometimes be a significant barrier for, back to our first paper, for those we want to encourage to do more primary palliative care, provide a palliative approach to care for their own patients. And it's not uncommon that the referrals to specialist teams are because a family doctor, for example, doesn't feel comfortable prescribing the opioids. And they, I wonder how much of that is fear of diversion or opioid misuse, you know, I don't have a good sense across the country, like how big of a barrier that is. And so that's something that I was reflecting on with the recommendations in this paper where we, you know, everyone should be able to prescribe opioids for their their patients, of course, those with the most complex needs should be supported through coaching and mentoring. And even you know, in, in, in some rare cases, we, you know, the specialist team should be the most responsible physicians for those very complex pains. But um, how can we support our colleagues in primary palliative care to have more comfort with opioids and perhaps through this type of paper, there's some clear recommendations that will help us with that. What do you think, Anna? Yeah, it is very tricky, you know, when there's hesitancy, right? And I think when you're not able to potentially follow up on all these patients, it is difficult, but it is important because we know that people who are more, you know, at the end of life, they probably have gone, have used more than one opioid and they use higher doses also, um, particularly closer to the end of life. So it's a challenge and hesitant, but yeah, it, it's, I don't know what the, what the answer is in terms of how do we promote this? I think certainly globally, I think there's also a hesitancy and fear of actually trying to, I mean, in terms of getting policy to get opioids into countries because of what they see happening in, uh, you know, North America, Europe, Australia. So yeah, I, I don't know what the answer is, but I think the easy answer would be education, right? And I think, you know, these research, uh, high priority research areas, I think would ha be helpful because I think sometimes when there's more evidence, it does help to support that. 
And so Jean, back to what you were saying. So having something like the opioid risk tool, like as part of all palliative care assessments, I'm wondering what your thoughts are about that. And should that be incorporated into providing a palliative approach to care for people who need opioid prescriptions, not just specialist palliative care? For sure. I, I think that would be a great approach to take that in any setting where patients are you know, going to be prescribed opioids for uh, symptoms related to their life-limiting illness, I think we should be also screening at the same time for opioid-related health harms. I want to call back that great comment that I think was a question that uh, Paul had raised about bi-directional learning. So I, I had a case recently where, you know, we had a patient with an opioid-related health harm, and I spoke to their family physician who was actually much more knowledgeable than I was about things like the use of methadone and the use of buprenorphine naloxone for the management of opioid use disorder and things like that. So I think it was a great bi-directional learning opportunity. And, you know, this raises the question of how do we do the screening? And what happens for those who screen positive? How do we do things differently? You know, what is the role for something like urine drug testing? Is that something that people should be doing for those who screen positive? Any, any thoughts on that? I think they did mention that those are sort of high priority research topics that, you know, are urine drug screens, should they be done on everyone? Who should you do them on and do spot tests or do you send them to the lab? And, and is that something I don't, I don't know if we have enough information or research on that. So that is high priority that was chosen. And even um, some of the tools we need to do a little bit more research, particularly in our population, right? It's a bit tricky, I think, when you're trying to develop that therapeutic relationship with people and at the same time help their symptoms, but then also recognize that there's these issues. But And sometimes, you know, they're, they're trying to get off of certain substances, but then opioids, you know, are sort of the mainstay for managing some of these symptoms. I wanted just to quickly, there's a question here that says, did the article address emerging technologies that would address that issue? Example, dispensing robots, PCA pumps with lockouts, et cetera. I didn't go through all of the 130 recommendations in detail, and I can't recall, but I don't think they address that specifically, but certainly, you know, they did talk about the tools and, and different areas there, but not uh, so much in detail, but I could be wrong. So I would recommend you read through the article because it's still a lot of work, and I think they did an amazing job. Thanks. And there's a comment from one of the attendees as well, just to say that, you know, we need to really look to the experience of physicians who work probably in chronic pain and um, addictions medicine as well to learn from. And I certainly hope that some of the upcoming studies that we're going to see in Canada will be in partnership with our colleagues who have a lot of experience and expertise uh, in this domain. And I certainly at our local Queens program, Gene is leading that work that he was talking about in our clinic setting. And he has been uh, looking to those experts. I don't know if you want to add anything, Gene, about the need to integrate with addictions medicine specialists in this regard. Yeah, there's a huge need for that because as we recognize more about the risk of opioid-related health harms in our patient population that we see in palliative care, there's going to be more of a call to have routine screening using tools like the opioid risk tool or other SOAP tools. As Anna said, this is all stuff that's been validated in the chronic pain population. So one of the things we're starting to do is look at the feasibility of a multi-site kind of validation of the opioid risk tool in, in the palliative care patient population. So I think that is all kind of exciting work to come. Obviously, uh, once we do screen, we need to know how we deal with that. So I think we need to have close relationships with addictions medicine, with chronic pain. Uh, we should have kind of open lines of communication. And again, going back to that bi-directional learning, that's I think how we all will kind of upskill uh, in palliative care on how we deal with opioid-related health harms. 
Great discussion. It's a very different articles that we've covered today. As we discussed at the beginning, there was a large number of papers in the past couple of months that we reviewed, that our team reviewed, and uh, some honorable mentions uh, that really deserve review if you have time and interest to take a look. We've got eight of them listed and there can be found on our website with the links to the articles. So we won't have time to discuss them today as mentioned, but there will be some resources and information about them available through the website for you to take a look at. And a really, really big thank you to all of the Journal Watch contributors who regularly every month review, as, as I mentioned, those 15 palliative medicine journals and general journals for the most practice-changing, interesting articles that we can all learn from. So uh, the names of all the teams are on the website as well. Thank you very much to all of those uh, individuals. And uh, stay connected with us through our website. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I'm James O'Hearn, and I hope you found it both enjoyable and informative. This podcast is a collaboration between Pallium Canada and the Divisions of Palliative Care at Queen's University and McMaster University. It is a part of the Palliative Care Echo Project, which aims to support continuous professional development among healthcare providers across Canada who care for patients with life-limiting illness. If you'd like to learn more about the Journal Watch program or our other Palliative Care Echo Project activities, feel free to email us at echo at pallium.ca. That's echo at p-a-l-l-i-u-m.ca. Or visit our website at www.echopalliative.com. The Palliative Care Echo Project is supported by financial contributions from Health Canada. However, the views expressed in today's episode do not necessarily represent the views of Health Canada. The music for this episode is Dazed by Airtone. Copyright 2012, licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial 3.0 license. You can find Airtone's music at dig.ccmixter.org. Today's episode was produced by Holly Finn. See you soon!